Hello, and thank you very much for coming. Today, I'd like to talk to you about the Roman poet Virgil. So Virgil was born in Mantua in North Italy in 70 BC. His childhood, his youth would have been coloured therefore by civil war, the end of the Republic, Cleopatra, Antony, Pompey, Crassus, Julius Caesar dying on their infamy, infamy, they've all got it and so on. Um, that's his <laughs> childhood. And uh, his family is impoverished by it. They have their land given to veterans, which happens to lots of people. And so uh, Virgil's early work, his earliest big poem, the Eclogues, uh, Bucolics, it's sometimes translated as, is a sort of big pian to the joy and beauty of the countryside, because obviously he grew up there and felt that it had been sort of taken from him. He eventually becomes very rich, by the way, so don't feel too bad for him. He's such a good poet, people keep making him gifts and leaving him legacies, and that is the best way to get rich. So he's very wealthy when he dies. He becomes a client of Mycenas, the great patron of the arts in the first century BC. Uh, Mycenas is patron of uh, Propertius, the love poet, of Horace, obviously out of being Horace, love poet, satirist, letter writer, general super Horace, and of Virgil. The opening chunk of the Georgics, his second great poem, is dedicated to Mycenas. The Georgics looks like it is a treatise on farming, told in poetry. No, I know, it sounds great. Um, <laughs> it's not really a treatise on farming. He kind of overlooks quite big aspects of farming, which are quite important. A full quarter of the Georgics is about bees. Um, just to give you an idea of the proportions that we're working at here, bees. Amongst other things, in case you're interested, I literally found out this word yesterday, having known about the phenomenon for ages and not realised there was a word for it because I had not been paying attention, so I share it with you, um, including the miraculous bugonia. <laughs> no, I know. So, if you lose your hive of bees, or swarm of bees, or whatever kind of Whatever the absolute, I'm, to be honest, I'm scared of bees, so I can't get that close to them. I always have been. I'm scared of bugs, all bugs. Uh, anything with more than four legs. Tie two mice together, scared of that. Um, so. <laughs> so, he's uh, more interested in bees than I am, but nonetheless, many ancients believed, uh, including Virgil, that if your hive swarm of bees disappears or dies, or whatever it is that happens, hive collapse, right? That's a thing. Then you could generate a new hive of bees, slash swarm of bees, by getting the carcass of an ox or other animal and leaving it in a field at some distance. Now, here's the thing. That's the bugonia. A boos is a, a cow in Greek, and then it generates uh, from that. People thought that a carcass would produce bees, presumably because they didn't get close enough to the carcass to see that they were not bees. <laughs> <laughs> This is a recurrent theme with Roman natural history. Uh, we'll come back to it shortly. <laughs> Having let himself down a bit with the dead animal thing, I decided to find out just how accurate Virgil is on the subject of bees. Gordon Cutting is a beekeeper in Buckinghamshire, where he has something like 600,000 bees. Not that I counted. I was quite astonished when I read Virgil to start with, not least because they knew far more than I would have expected they would have known. But they knew, for example, that they had guard bees at the front. They knew that entrances to uh, colonies had to be quite small. And he understood the nectar collecting. Um, but he also talks about the glue that they bring in, which he describes as more binding than lime or the pitch of Phrygian ida. And that we would understand as propolis, which bees will bring in from trees as a resin. And they use to fill any holes that there are in the colony and is that in order to keep the hive safe from invaders? Because Virgil's quite bothered about hornets and things like that. 
intruding into a hive and causing chaos? Yes, it would be partly to do with keeping wasps and other creatures like hornets out, and also for a certain amount of disease control. Virgil defines quite a few different types of bee. He enjoys anthropomorphizing them, so they have <laughs> new jobs there, guard bees. I'm sure you have a more formal name, perhaps, but also the undertaker bee. Did you recognise that description? Yes, and in fact, looking out over my little lapidaires this morning, I noticed a few old bees being pulled out and being dragged away and flown off by some of the younger bees. So he understood that aspect of beekeeping. There's something extraordinary about his love for nature, and one of the things that you can really read from it is the way he's prepared to turn animals into people, and insects especially. People are always being compared with ants or bees. Bees are always being compared to people. Do you see your bees as being small, stripy people? An awful lot of them, if you've got 10 hives with 60,000 bees in, that's a, that's a lot of new friends <laughs> I've just given you. <laughs> I don't see the bees as being friendly in any way. They are wild insects. But I do have a love for them nonetheless. I think when you go into a colony, you see them working diligently, thoroughly, providing for the next generation. Most of the bees that are around now will not be around in six or eight weeks' time. And during the course of the summer, bees will live in the hive for three weeks and live on the wing for three weeks, and that's it. So they're always producing for the next generation. And I think maybe that's one of the things that... uh Virgil gets really right. I know he talks about a king bee rather than a queen bee, but I think we can let him have that because he didn't have a microscope. He's talking so much and so extensively about how one generation should prepare for the next and how the battles can take place in a hive between one king, as he would see it, and then the next king. He'd lived through a time of civil war, so that's not an accident, I think. Do you sometimes see your bees in those kinds of terms? Yes, they, they certainly are at war at times. Towards the end of a season, if you've taken honey off the top of the brood box, they're looking for anything they can get from around and about them. And if they find a weak colony, they will often go and raid that. Really? They will often be out there fighting. (laughs) 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 Fighting with each other outside the colony. And you'll see them tussling with each other. Really? I say, I'm too afraid, so I never look at them. (laughs) I had no idea this was going on. Do you think Virgil might have been himself a beekeeper? He certainly had a pretty good understanding of bees, judging by his writings, but it would be difficult to tell if he was a beekeeper or just a friend of a beekeeper. The greatest piece of work that Virgil produced, as far as I am concerned, is, of course, the Aeneid, his great epic poem uh, about the foundation of Rome, of Italy. It uh, was begun by him in 29 BC. He spends 10 years working on it, and it is still unfinished when he dies. It's 12 books, and each one is sort of 700 to 900 lines, just to give you an idea. So, you know, a hefty paperback, but not, you know, it's 10 years is all I'm saying, and still unfinished. He really goes for it, is what I'm telling you. And when he he dies, he's away from home. He goes to Greece to have a little rest from all that writing and editing, I think. And then he catches a fever, and then he dies. And he's given instructions to his executor, a man named Varius, I think, saying, if, you know, I die while it's still in the state, you must burn it. And Varius doesn't burn it. And the Emperor Augustus demands that it is published posthumously. And so we have the Aeneid. And we have Augustus, Brian Blessed, uh, to thank. (laughs) To thank for that, uh, for otherwise there would be none. Now, it's a 
piece of political propaganda. I guess that's a fair criticism, if it is a criticism. A foundation myth of Rome, it's about Aeneas, who's a Trojan prince. He leaves Troy after the Trojan horse, fall of Troy, etc. And eventually, after various travels, we'll come to that in a minute, he gets to uh, Italy, where he fights with a man named Turnus to win the hand of Lavinia and thus found what will become the city of Rome. And um, there's a direct line in this poem between Aeneas and Octavian, Augustus. Aeneas's son in this poem is called Ascanius, but sometimes also Julius. So this is a specific link to Octavian, who is the stepson, adopted son of Julius Caesar. So it is political propaganda. It is also brilliant. And the best book, for my money anyway, and I am simply not wrong on this, <laughs> is Aeneid IV, Dido and Aeneas, one of the truly great love stories of all time. When Aeneas arrives on the shores of Carthage from Troy. They've been shipwrecked, basically. There's been a terrible storm and they've had to put in. Dido is also a migrant. She has grown up in Tyre and her brother, Pygmalion, has killed her husband, Sychaeus, and she has ended up as the queen of Carthage. She's on the run. And uh, they fall in love. And Dido is its an amazing construction. Dido is uh, every passionate desperate person in love. She's always asking priests to read the future. She's always trying to read the entrails of animals, which is how you tell the future uh, in that world. That's an appropriate thing to do in Rome, right? They're superstitious people. But she can't, she's, she's practically got her nose in the entrails. And she's desperate for them to tell her what she wants to hear, which is that it will all work out happily ever after. Hugh mentum ignari vartum, says Virgil. Alas, the unknowing minds of priests. <laughs> They tell her what she wants to hear, but of course it is not true. Juno and Venus conspire for Aeneas and Dido to fall in love and to marry. And then the, the story gets out, rumour, pharma, F-A-M-A, obviously, than which there is no more swift evil, says Virgil. Luckily he died before Twitter. Uh, <laughs> But Rumour is a great monster. She's covered in feathers, I think this is right, and she has a blinking eye under every feather and a mouth and a tongue flapping in it and an ear, so thousands of eyes. And so she's constantly seeing and gossiping and the rumour gets out and it gets to the ears of Jupiter, king of the gods who knows that Aeneas needs to be getting on his way and get to Italy. He sends Mercury, uh, the messenger god, down to Aeneas to tell him to get a move on. And Aeneas tries to break it gently to Dido and, of course, it doesn't go terribly well. She finds out that he's trying to sort of prepare quietly and they have the most brilliant ding-dong. There aren't that many really great rows between men and women in classical literature, but this is probably the best one in all of Latin literature. It really is great. Dido comes to Aeneas and says, how could you try and sneak away? Did you think I wouldn't notice? Did you really think this was the best way to treat me? And Aeneas just shuts down. He goes super loyally. He tries to answer her in a sort of measured, lawyerish fashion. And in the end, he just can't quite get the words out. And he says, you know, I, I didn't mean to hurt you and I didn't mean to do this. And it's not my fault. It's not what I want. I can't be helped. That's just how it is. He is Pius Aeneas, dutiful Aeneas. He has to do what he's told. And eventually he cracks and says this very, very famous, very beautiful half-line, Italiam non sponte sequor, it is not of my own accord I journey to Italy. And she is furious. <laughs> None of it's going to cut any eyes. She says, you told me that you were descended from Dardanus, this great mythical figure, and that your mother was a goddess, was Venus. I'll tell you what I think, the Caucasus mountain range. The Caucasus was your father, and you were suckled by Hyrcanian tigers. <laughs> Come and she says, if you go, I'm going to kill myself, and that's just how it's going to be, and then I will pursue you from beyond death with Atris Ignibus, black fires. Everyone should wish to be Dido when they've been chucked. <laughs> Perhaps 
Perhaps the true genius of Virgil's creation is that Dido's story doesn't feel like that of a queen, but of an ordinary human woman. Because I wanted to find out how Dido felt from the inside, I went to talk to Pamela Helen Stephen, who sang the role at Opera North in 2013. It's a story of a woman. Completely it is. And the experiences that she has are, yes, they are extreme, but most of us have had a little bit of an experience that, that we can draw upon, that I just have to enlarge... Yes, we've all been left by a cad, even if that cad wasn't yeah. a, a Trojan prince. Yes. I think we can say We've all say. felt madly in love. Yes. And she, it was a madness. It became an obsession for her that, unfortunately, she couldn't digest, she couldn't make sense of. And so it, it had the tragic consequences that it did. And do you enjoy playing such a, a traumatic role? It seems like... Of course. I, it, to the untrained eye, many operas have, you know, slightly self-destructive women in. Mm. Um, and mm. yet Dido seems to be the one that, uh, that sticks into your skin. And it holds really you. did. It, uh, yes, I do enjoy it. I can honestly say it took me six months to get Dido out of my system. It was really intense. <laughs> and so did you find yourself, you know, sort of waking in the middle of the night and thinking... Waking in the middle of the night? I should myself on a pyre. Oh, my... I could No, this is no joke. I was so wrapped up in it during the rehearsals. I couldn't sleep. And I ended up tuning in to Radio 4 comedies, and this is absolutely no joke, at two in the morning to shut my brain off. I needed to laugh. We'd love to have heard a bit of Pamela's interpretation of Dido here but there's no recording available. So instead, at Pamela's suggestion, here's Dame Janet Baker singing Dido's Lament. Interesting that you say she's mad because all the way through Aeneid Four, he he describes her as amens or daemons. Yeah. She's without a mind. She's out of her mind. Yes, but that is right, and I'm sure we've all felt that. You lose sense of the now. You lose sense of your priorities, of your duties. She had her public duty, and she been through some pretty rough times hadn't she she needed that escape and this is something that you have probably thought about more than virtually anybody who we've spoken to about mm. uh, Virgil is that most scholars are having to look from the outside in they're looking right. at a text and trying to unpick meaning yes but you had to come the other way you had to go from the inside out yes. you had to find a character and then share her with an audience yes. how did you go about building your version of Dido it's a slow process. It's a collaborative process, of course. But before you start the rehearsal period, I have to do a lot of background information because not everything is written in the score. And you, you've got to work out why your character sometimes says something and, and you don't quite know the context. Why does she not want to see Aeneas when he first arrives? Why is she cold to him? Well, it's because she's loyal. Poor she dead had, husband. Her, hus her husband was killed, and she has this loyalty to him. And, of course, if she gives herself and frees herself from that, she's weakening her position 
possibly as a person and the control she has as a leader and she was a very charismatic leader. She was vulnerable, passionate, volatile. She's an intriguing figure, isn't she? Because she's she's so traumatised already. Yes. She's lost her husband, Sakaius, yes. yeah. to her evil brother. Yeah. So she's a refugee yeah. straight away. Yeah. And then she, she comes right out and says, you know, I'm, I'm besieged on all sides. Everyone basically wants to make me mm-hmm. marry them mm-hmm. so that they can, mm-hmm. you know, have my power rather mm-hmm. than anything else. Mm-hmm. And so it's a huge effort of control just to be a woman in a man's world. Yes. And then the whole thing unravels mm. when she is undone by the interference of the gods, the gods in yes. Virgil, but as mm-hmm. sorceress or a sorcerer mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the opera. That's right. I mean, you know, it's a, it is a very witchy book, book four of the Aeneid, where they have a sort of very dubious marriage ceremony and it's all very witchy. It happens in a cave. cave yes. And it's all very yes. strange but it, and but dark. Was, was there actually a marriage ceremony or was it that just she mistook what was going on? Jeez, as... do you want to get a lawyer? No, <laughs> Totally a marriage ceremony. You're on his side. I can't believe you. This interview is over. Yeah, she's totally... She is the best broken heart of anywhere ever. Uh, He does leave, of course, and she does exactly what she says. Uh, She kills herself. She stabs herself with a sword and dies. And she dies very slowly and painfully. And uh, Juno, the goddess, is finally moved to pity, something she has not shown throughout this book. Um, And she sends Iris, the goddess of the rainbow, down to help Dido in the passage from life to death. And so a beautiful rainbow appears as Iris uh, arrives at Dido's not-quite-dead body, and uh, she passes between life and death, and Dido cuts a lock of her hair, which, for those of you who are uh, prepared to read it, suggests that she is, uh, it's what you would do with a sacrificial victim, right, is cut a lock of their hair. So that just tells us that she is a sacrifice to the gods, as if we didn't know. When we see her again in book six in the underworld, uh, she won't talk to him. She's with her husband, reunited with Sakaius, and she won't even look at Aeneas. It's a very beautiful, very cool moment, I merely say. So... It's awesome. Let it go. Uh, So, (laughs) I think she's cool. And I have the microphone. (laughs) Um, So, uh, the other thing that I want to tell you about Virgil was his composition, which I think is super interesting. We hardly ever have a record of how people write. Um, It's really rare to have it, um, especially from the ancient world. We have to kind of work it out from their writing. But we have a life of Virgil written by Suetonius, who, of course, wrote the Lives of the Twelve Caesars, on which I, Claudius, was based. And so he tells us how Virgil wrote. Um, He would dictate loads of lines of verse in the morning. And then the afternoon, he would edit them. He would cut them down. And uh, he says, Suetonius says, uh, in the words of Virgil, uh, he was like a she-bear, a mother bear, licking it into shape. Lambendo effingera, the exact same thing that we would say, to lick into shape. If you're wondering why that makes him like a she-bear, the answer is, um, the Romans weren't stupid. So, if they saw a mother bear giving birth to a baby bear, they very much knew not to get up close and have a look. (laughs) But here's the thing, from a distance, if you see a mother bear giving birth to a baby bear, what you see is sort of a blob. And so they thought that when the mother bear leaned down to lick the baby bear clean, that what was actually happening was that the baby bear was a sort of protean mass of putative bear. (laughs) And that the act of licking is what gave the bear bear shape. (laughs) To lick it into shape. That is where it comes from. Never question me again. bear angle on Virgil, I turned to Dr Llewellyn Morgan of Brasenose College, Oxford, and I asked him how Virgil was rated by his contemporaries. What Virgil becomes 
is the greatest poet that the Romans ever had. You know, they all Romans, after Virgil, thought that Virgil was the absolute bee's knees as far as poetry was concerned. Where he began was somewhere perhaps a bit more humble. I mean, he was a small-town boy from North Italy. Uh, we don't know much about his early life, but we get the impression there were hardships. But, you know, he was obviously a very clever young man who took himself to Rome and became established on the poetic scene. And am I right to think he eventually moved to the south of Italy? So he ends up being sort of everywhere in Italy at one point or another, which is quite unusual, I would guess. Yes, I mean, he, he dies right down in the south of Italy, so at the very end of his life, that's where he, he is. But he seems to spend quite a lot of time in Naples. Naples seems to be the place, so Naples south of Rome seems to be the place that he finds most congenial. But it, the impression we get is that, that he wasn't too comfortable with the, the hustle and bustle of, of the big city of Rome. And that's certainly what you get from his writing, isn't it? He's a country boy at heart, I think. All those nature similes. Could you tell us a bit about them? You've got to be a bit careful going straight from the poetry to the character of the poet. But he does write two collections in particular, the Eclogues and then the Georgics, which are based in the countryside and which kind of use the countryside as an image for much, much bigger issues, the, you know, the condition of Rome and the dark contemporary history of Rome and those kinds of things. But his preferred way of thinking in those earlier uh, poems, at any rate, is through the countryside. But, you know, even in the Georgics, where he's, he's kind of offering real practical advice to farmers, if a farmer ever followed this advice, that farmer would be, would be bankrupt within hours. It's a very literary kind of understanding of the countryside that Virgil is dealing with. So I think it's still possible that Virgil, like myself, felt physically afraid when he saw grass and sheep and things like that. I didn't know this about you. Well, there you go. No, I'm glad to add it to my list. And how long did it take for people to sort of recognise him? I always think of him as Hmm. somebody who was kind of instantly acknowledged a genius. But I guess I have no real proof of that, except that people obviously bunged him cash. (laughs) And that's normally a good sign. What we can see in the Eclogues, which is the first collection which we definitely can attribute to him, is Virgil kind of looking for powerful friends. But the big breakthrough seems to be, as it is for a lot of poets in his day, when he meets a man called Mykenas, who's a right-hand man of Augustus and also a promoter of literature. And once you are part of the circle of Mykenas, your financial concerns are at an end. And so I suppose that has to lead me to the obvious question about the Aeneid, my favourite Virgil, undeniably, Mm -hmm. which is... What is he really writing about? Is he writing about Aeneas and the Trojans and the founding of Troy, or is he writing about Augustus and the Romans, or both? He's writing about both of those things, but it wouldn't work as the poem it is, and it wouldn't have been so successful as it has been if it wasn't, first and foremost, what it claims to be, which is a story about Aeneas and Aeneas's departure from Troy and his foundation of Rome and his fighting in Italy and those kinds of things. I think fundamentally what Virgil is writing about in all his poems is the civil wars that are going on when he's writing the Eclogues, but by the time he gets to the Aeneid have apparently been put to bed but have still left Rome terribly, terribly traumatised. And those are deeply morally challenging times, you know, when you are fighting your friends, fighting your brothers. That's part of what makes the Aeneid so challenging, is that he's got somehow for his readers to recapture the the moral quandaries of the civil wars, I think. And does his influence 
live on in the rest of the ancient world. You often get authors kind of harking back to how much better things were in the old days, especially comic writers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think everybody steals a bit from Virgil, don't they? It's sort of hard not to. Yeah, and you know, a sign of what an impact it was going to have is that the Aeneid goes straight into the schoolrooms. It becomes a school text almost immediately and, and remains there, you know. 2,000 years, still exactly, there. <laughs> still, still there, has, it's never left the schoolroom. Yes, he becomes instantly the very core of Roman literature, of Roman poetry in particular. And do you think that Virgil still influences writing and drama and poetry and everything that has clearly stolen from the ancient world. Do you think he still influences them today? Yes, certainly. And I was thinking not not very long ago about a moment in Shakespeare's Henry V, this famous speech that Henry V gives, his, his motivational speech, where he says, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It's the great, great grand kiddie of a wonderful motivational speech that Aeneas gives in the first book of the Aeneid, where the Trojans are washed up on the shore of Africa near Carthage yet again, you know, they're having such a bad time, and Aeneas pulls himself together and says, it can't get any worse than this, and we few, we happy few, in Latin is zo socii my comrades. T.S. Eliot regarded the Aeneid as the classic, the model of what great poetry should be. You know, Seamus Heaney, in uh, one of his collections, turns the eclogues, these pastoral poems of Virgil, into pastoral poems about Heaney's youth in Northern Ireland and reintroduces to Virgil's poetry that quite urgent political content that there was in those pastoral poems back in... uh, 40 BC. But if you read Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe or anything by C.S. Lewis, it's all Virgil. It's yeah. straight out of Virgil. Did you know that the motto of West Brom is derived from a uh, quotation from Virgil? I did not know that, although I am from that part of the world. Well, what is labor, it, labor omnia winket. Work conquers everything, which is also the motto of West Bromwich, I think, but it's taken over by the football team. We're very hard-working people, you see, Midlanders. Yes. That's how we are. And doing exceptionally well in the league at the moment, I believe. And, of course, famously, Birmingham's uh, MP Enoch Powell was a big fan of the Aeneid. He he liked to quote bits of the Aeneid as well, yes. I always wonder if he knew he was quoting the Sybil, (laughs) crazy (laughs) drug-eyed woman (laughs) rather than the hero. I always like to think he didn't. And also, did he appreciate he was uh, quoting a poem which is all about the mixing of peoples and uh, you know the, taking the trojans and the mix, mixing them with the latins and uh, and producing a much much greater people as a consequence i'm going to say no he didn't know that <laughs> at least if he did he had managed to forget it conveniently <laughs> if you ever doubt the legacy of virgil of course i'm sure you don't then he is the guide that dante chooses to take him through hell he is the man who gives george bernard shaw title for a play of arms and the man i sing i would argue and indeed have argued in print and in real life that buffy the vampire slayer is absolutely the modern incarnation of Aeneas. Um, (laughs) I'm not joking. He is dutiful, P.S. Aeneas. She is dutiful, P.R. Buffy. Um, He... He always has his sort of trusty companions to help him through. So does she. He leaves Troy with his father, Anchises, and his son. She is always looking after her mum, Joyce, and later her sister, Dawn. She is prepared to sacrifice the greatest love of her life at the end of season two. He is prepared to sacrifice the great love of his life twice. Book two, when he leaves Creosa behind in Troy, and book four, when he leaves Dido. He's kind of busy, actually. When he leaves Dido behind in uh, Carthage. Don't test me. I really have thought this through. Um, So the legacy goes from, I would say, Dante to Buffy, uh, the ultimate sign of why uh, Virgil is spectacular. Thank you very much.